0: Given to an individual or an institution in a will. But in a deeper and more significant sense, a legacy is something that you leave someone that is immaterial, something of yourself, something that can influence the life of another human being far beyond anything that's material. And the interesting thing is that we all leave a legacy to those who survive us on this planet, it may be a good legacy. It may be a bad one. Or perhaps, as is the case most of the time, it's a mixed one. But we all leave a legacy. The only way to avoid leaving a legacy is to have no personal associations at all. That may happen to very few people, but it's very rare. I recall doing a very sad funeral A number of years ago, a man had passed away. He was not a believer in the Lord Jesus. Um, He had no church, and he had no pastor, but the family knew me, so they asked if I would do a service for their dad. I knew several of the members of the family, so I said, okay. It was a bit odd for me because the only real conversation I ever had with this man was a negative one. In fact, he threatened bodily harm to me. At the point, the only conversation we ever had Actually, he told me if I didn't leave the room that he was in, he was going to beat me with his cane. <laughs> be happy to leave, no problem at all. I wanted to make sure the family knew that this man would probably be turning over in his grave if he knew that I was the one that was going to do his funeral, but they said they had nobody else. The fellow was not very well liked, and only a few family members showed up at the funeral home. They could have all fit in a 12 by 12 room, just a few of them. And as I do, it's my custom, I ask a couple of the people that were prominent members, and the only reason I said, the people who are more talkative and would like to speak about it. So I, I pulled them into another room and I said, is there anything special you'd like me to say about your dad? That's when I found out he absolutely was not a believer in the Lord Jesus. And they said, well, you we can't really say anything spiritual. I said, well, okay. Was there anything about him that you or the grandkids you know, particularly enjoy, that you particularly liked? Usually you hear things when I ask people like that. You, you hear, well, yeah, you know, dad used to like to take us fishing or he loved his kids. You know, He might have been kind of gruff, but he loved his kids. Or he was a great carpenter, and he used to make me things. I remember the time he made me that chair. Or he was a really hard worker. Something, anything. Give me something to work with with his funeral. But when I asked the family of any fond memory they had of this man, they just looked and said, no, nothing. He's not a believer, so I can't give him any spiritual comfort. And he was not a nice guy, and there was not one single memory that they could bring up to me of anything nice in this man's life. I said, there's got to be something. And I will never forget my friend, who was the one I was talking to at the time. She says, no, Daddy wasn't a very nice person. And then she followed up by saying, there really isn't anything good that I can say about him. Now that's sad to me. To live your entire life on this earth, have a family and grandchildren, and when it comes time for you to go, they can't think of one single nice thing to say about it. I told, told them at that point that this funeral service is going to be really short. If this is all I have to work with, and they said, that's okay. We'd like to get this done and get on out of here. So it was. I don't know how long it lasted, but it was probably measured in seconds, not minutes, <laughs> by the shortest service I've ever done. And that was fine with them. In fact, we decided to skip the memorial service inside the funeral home altogether, go straight to the graveside So we went to the gravesite. I recited Psalm 23. I gave the gospel to everybody that was there. I couldn't give them comfort that their loved one was in heaven now, but I gave the rest of them the gospel. We went home. There was no need for Kleenex. You know how they say there wasn't a dry eye in the place? There wasn't a moist eye in the place. I've never seen anything like it. Usually at least the grandkids miss you. Oftentimes the grandkids are the ones that are most upset because that's the first real death that they've had to endure. But even the grandkids... I have never seen anything like it. And as I drove away from the cemetery that day, I had the thought, maybe for the first time in my life, that it would be nice to live the kind of life that when you die, somebody actually misses you. The man left a legacy, but it's not a very positive one. It's a tragic one. What a waste. We all leave something behind, so why not make it meaningful? enjoyed a film back in 1989, one of my favorite films of all time called Dead Poets Society. It was one of Robin Williams's first really dramatic performances, and I thought he did a good job. He played a man named John Williams or John Keating who was a poetry teacher in an upscale New England prep school for boys. And it was at this prep school that he found out that the boys, although he had a passion for poetry, the boys could care less about it. They didn't want to have anything to do with poetry. It was a sissy thing as far as they were concerned. And if you'll remember that film, those of you that liked it as well, there was a critical point in the film where he gathers the whole class together. He says, come on, gather around me. And he makes a profound statement about poetry, but really about legacy. And this is what he said. Ramon Williams playing John Keating. He said, we don't read poetry because it's cute. We read and write poetry because we are members of the human race. And the human race is filled with passion and medicine and... Law, business, engineering, these are noble pursuits and necessary to sustain life. But poetry, beauty, romance, love, these are the things that we stay alive for. To quote Walt Whitman, O me, O life, of the questions of these recurring, of the endless trains of the faithless, of cities filled with the foolish, what good among me are these? O me, O life. Answer, that you are here, that life exists in identity, that the powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse, that the powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse. What will your verse be? King David, who we've been studying for a number of weeks, had a verse that he contributed that was profound. Admittedly, he failed in many areas of his life. He was not the father that he should have been. And his failures with respect to his family are legendary. But in spite of his failures, there's one thing that causes David to stand out as one of the greats of human history. And that is that he loved his Lord with a passion that few have surpassed. He is, in a sense, an enigma. But then, I have found, in my experience, most people are. Oftentimes, we judge people to be the sum total of their failures. But that's unfair, because God doesn't look at us that way. What right have we to look at other people that way, if that's not the way that God judges people? We are not the sum total of our failures. God looks at us first and foremost as individuals who have been justified by grace through faith. Our failures were dealt with on the cross. That's not to excuse them. It's not to deny the reality of the temporal consequences of those failures. But far too often we, as Christians, are too quick to pounce on the failures of others, while at the same time deeply desiring mercy for ourselves. All of us need mercy, all of us, no exceptions. As chapter 2 of 1 Kings opens, we find that David's time has come. It will for all of us, you know, sooner or later our time will come. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, the text reads this way, As David's time drew near, he charged Solomon, his son, saying, I am going the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. That could also be translated, grow up. It's time now to grow up, Solomon. And keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in all his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies according to what is written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn, so that the Lord may carry out His promise, which He spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons are careful of their way to walk before me in the truth with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. David first recognizes that he's about to die, and he's he's telling Solomon, even as a young man, you're going to die too someday. Probably the second most odd funeral I ever did was for a young man who had committed suicide by playing Russian roulette. He was not a good human being either. It was, it was a very strange thing. But to make matters worse, as I was sitting there trying to gather my thoughts before I did an evening service, there was going to be one in the evening and then one the next day, the funeral director came up to me and said, we have a problem, we have a problem. And I said, well, what's the problem? He said, a second wife has shown up. And the first wife doesn't know about the second, but the second knows about the first. And I said, guess what? I don't hardly know this family. you got a problem. <laughs> I don't have a problem. I'm out of here. But I didn't leave. I stayed, and it was, it was uh, very bizarre. You had one family and the kids on the one side of the aisle and the other one on the other side of the aisle, and you had a bunch of, if I might just be crude and call them punks. The crowd that he hung up with was a bunch of punks, and that's the one message I gave them that night, that you think you're invincible, just like this guy right here did. That he can put a gun to his head and spin the chamber and think that he's not going to die. You you think you're invincible, but you're not. There will come a time when you'll be laying in a casket just like him. Now, are you ready for that day? Because he wasn't. He wasn't ready. Are you ready? The fact is, David tells us right up front that all of our days are going to come to an end one time or another. And we need to be ready. His charge to Solomon actually comes in two parts. First, concerning Solomon's spiritual life in verses 1 through 4. And this is by far the most important aspect of the legacy that David will leave. And the second is his charge with respect to Joab, the sons of Barzillai, and then to Shimei in chapter 2, verses 5 through 12. David knows all too well the perils of living life outside of the plan of God. It's painful enough when that happens to each of us on a personal level, but David was the king. So when he lived his life outside of the plan of the purpose of God, the pain that he experienced was multiplied exponentially as it was suffered publicly. His charge to Solomon that I just read echoes Deuteronomy chapter 17 verses 18 through 20, which demonstrate that David was familiar with Torah or the first five books of the Old Testament. If you'll read along with me in Deuteronomy chapter 17, the text reads this way in verses 18 through 20. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. Let me pause and just break into the context here. Moses is acknowledging that there will be a point in time when Israel has a king. When he writes this, Israel didn't have a king. So he's saying for that future time when Israel has a king, the first thing that the king should do when that king comes and sits on his throne is he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. You get the impact of that? It's like like the king's responsibility was to take the first five books of the Bible and in front of the Levitical priest, he was to write it out for himself. And that way they knew the king knew the law. And David is telling us by the charge that he gives to Solomon here that he indeed does know the law. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and all of these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, in order that he and his sons may continue long in the kingdom in the midst of Israel. Unfortunately, that didn't happen very often. Most of the time the kings didn't do that. In fact, it may have been David might have been the only one. We don't have any record of David even doing it. But the what he tells Solomon here is a direct allusion to what Moses had written in Deuteronomy chapter seventeen. Proverbs chapter four, verses three through nine indicate that David did spend some time with Solomon. He may not have spent much time with the rest of his kids, but he got it right at the end. And when the time came, he does spend time with Solomon, teaching him the way of the Lord. If David would have done that with his other kids, no telling how his life would have been different. But he didn't. David leaves Solomon a very wealthy man, extremely wealthy. And then Solomon's going to go on to become even more wealthy. So he leaves him wealth, but he leaves him something that's far more valuable than all the gold and silver that he left him. And that was a spiritual legacy. So many of us spend the bulk of our lives saving and investing for the future, knowing all along that the probability is that we personally will never spend most of the money that we're saving and investing Most of it's going to go to our spouses or our kids or our grandkids. That's the way it's designed. That's a noble thing. That's what we've wanted all along. We want their lives to be easier. There's something good in that. There's something noble in that. But a financial legacy without an overriding spiritual one is as empty as Minute Maid Park has been this summer at the Astros games. It wasn't very long ago, just two, three, four years ago, you go to an Astros game, especially in August and September, you couldn't get in there. They were sold out. And then when you did go, every pitch, they were just screaming and yelling. There was such excitement. But now today, and there's hardly anybody there. It's empty. There may be a few people walking around, but it's basically empty. And that's the distinction I'm trying to draw tonight between a strictly financial legacy that you leave your family or a spiritual legacy. Again, I'm not arguing against the financial legacy. Of course, do it. Make sure your finances are in order. That's a responsibility you have of being a good steward of what he's given you. But don't do it in lieu of the spiritual legacy. Financial legacies are nice, but we all know kids who don't have the capacity to enjoy financial prosperity, and then upon receiving a great deal of money at the death of a parent or parents, they immediately break bad instead of breaking good. When I had first started college, we had some friends that were pilots, and the mother and the father and the oldest son took a trip one day from, or started a trip from Lafayette up to North Louisiana in order to pick up the youngest son at a camp. Well, they just, even though two of the three in there were pilots, something was not checked properly ahead of time. And so there was a mechanical problem in the plane. They did the best they could to land the plane on a golf course, and they almost made it. One last tree, but they didn't. And the landing gear clipped the tree, the plane flipped over on the fairway, and all three were killed. In fact, the only one really left in that family was the boy who was about 15 that they were going to pick up and the wife of the son who was an adult son that was actually, actually, I think, flying the plane. Only two people were left. Basically, what I'm saying is that boy was left alone because the young girl that was only 21 herself, she couldn't help take care of the boy. One thing I remember about that, though, is the boy was left with a great deal of money. Probably had more money soon as that will was read, than he ever has had the, another day in his life. But I also know this. Unfortunately, he was left with no spiritual legacy at all. He had no capacity for the money on a human level. He had no capacity for what was in front of him. And I know it's very hard for any 15-, 16-year-old. I'm not, I'm not saying this is an easy thing, but he had no capacity. got into drugs. got into crime. Even though he didn't need the money, he got into crime. It was just a terrible thing. He ended up in jail, and then we kind of lost track of him. After that, it was a terrible thing. A financial windfall might actually get somebody in trouble. I and mean, it did with this young boy. But a spiritual legacy will never get anyone into trouble. And again, please don't misunderstand me. I don't say this to discourage you from any way in taking care of your financial legacy to your offspring or to your spouses. My point is, is this, that it's far more important to leave a spiritual legacy to those who survive you than a financial one. As as significant as the financial issue is, it's far more important. I would almost say infinitely more important, and I don't think I would be exaggerating, to leave a spiritual legacy. We must invest not simply in stocks and bonds, but also in the lives of those that we love. It takes time and effort to leave a spiritual legacy promise you the effort will not be wasted. One more note here. You can't wait until your deathbed in the final minutes of your life and call your kids around you and say, hey, listen, I got something to tell you. If you haven't been telling them all along, it's going to ring very hollow indeed. You don't start a legacy on your deathbed. You begin a legacy on the sofa at home with your daughter or later on maybe with your grandson sitting on your knee while you're reading them Bible stories and telling them about Jesus. That's how you start a legacy. Legacies start at the frozen yogurt store with one of those grandchildren. where well, you go and buy them a frozen yogurt, and you start to tell them the difference between right and wrong and start to teach them about personal integrity and the things of God. That's when legacies start way back when. We can't wait until our deathbed to start legacies. Now, David, as I've said, I've admitted, David failed with regard to his spiritual legacy with almost all of his other kids. But with Solomon, he finally got it right. We get that from Proverbs 4, that he had spent time with his parents and his parents teaching him the ways of God. So this is the legacy that David reiterates on his deathbed. To Solomon, and it basically says like this Get with God's plan, son, and stay with it. That's where you'll be happy. We know from history, Solomon didn't do that. He started off well, but the curve of his life started off well and then faded almost as the, in the complete downturn, almost to the end, where he writes Ecclesiastes and he realizes the mistakes he's made. And he realizes that he sought for happiness in all the wrong places. He was looking for love in all the wrong places, didn't find it if he would have just remembered his creator in the days of his youth like his father had encouraged him to do. This is the spiritual legacy that David leaves at least this one boy, Solomon. Now remember, Solomon is about 20 at the time that David dies. So he at least leaves the spiritual legacy, and Solomon gets started off on the right foot. You know, you can leave a spiritual legacy to your kids and to your grandkids and to the people that you love. You can't live their lives for them. Even though sometimes we'd like to, wouldn't we? We see our kids making mistakes. We see our grandkids doing things we wouldn't want them to do. And we can't live the life for them. All we can do is give them a start. Give them the, give them the building blocks the, so they have something. Not like this poor boy his parents and his, his older brother were killed in that plane crash. You had nothing, nothing to base his life upon. Well, now, as we conclude this, some advice on how to handle certain individuals. David's not stopped with just the spiritual advice, but he does give some advice on how to handle certain individuals. In verses 5 and 6, Now, you also know what Joab the son of Zeruiah did to me, and what did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel, to Abner the son of Ner and to Amasa the son of Jether, whom he killed. He also shed the blood of war in peace, and he put the blood of war on his belt above his waist and on his sandals and on his feet, meaning he just covered in blood. So act according to your wisdom, and do not let his gray hair hair go down to Sheol in peace. Well, Joab has, of course, been one of the most intriguing characters in all the Davidic narratives. He's David's nephew, although he's probably about the same age as David, if not even a little older than David. And Joab has had his moments of intense loyalty. But then he's had other moments where you wonder, what in the world is he thinking? He does stuff that just, if it was anybody else in David's army, he would have been dead. David could handle Joab. David was ever bit as tough as Joab. Mentally, physically, he was the warrior that Joab was. He knew him. They had grown up together. He could handle him, but he knows that young Solomon's not going to be able to. There's no way this 20-year-old son of his is going to be able to handle Joab, who was actually his much, much older cousin. If Solomon is going to reign in peace, Joab's going to have to go. I want you to turn to later in the chapter with me. We're going to skip over a couple things. Let's see what happened to Joab. In verse 28... Now the news came to Joab. This is after David has died. Now the news came to Joab, for Joab had followed Adonijah, although he had not followed Absalom. And Joab fled to the tent of the Lord and took hold of the horns of the altar. And it was told King Solomon that Joab had fled to the tent of the horn of the Lord, and behold, he is beside the altar. Then Solomon sent Benaniah, the son of Joadiah, and sang, Fall upon him. So Benaniah came to the tent of the Lord and said to him, Thus the king has said, Come out. But he said, No, for I will die here. Benaniah brought the, the, the king the word, saying, Thus spoke Joab, and thus he answered me. And the king said to him, Do as he has spoken, and fall upon him, and bury him, that you remo- may you remove from me and my father's house the blood which Joab shed without cause. And the Lord will return his blood on his own head, because he fell upon two men more righteous and better than he, and killed them with a sword, while my father David did not know it. The Abner, son of Ner, commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa, son of Jethar, Commander of the army of Judah. So shall their blood return on the head of Joab and on the head of his descendants forever. But to David and his descendants and his house and his throne there may be peace from the Lord forever. Then Benaniah, son of Joadiah, went up and fell upon him and put him to death, and he was buried in his own house in the wilderness. Now, this is pretty brutal. But what, what Solomon is doing, he is acting in wisdom. David probably should have had Joab executed decades before. Why he doesn't, we're never really told in the text. But Solomon does execute justice on Joab. Even though Joab had been faithful in some things, he did things that were worthy of the death penalty in Israel. Solomon is starting off by letting people know he's not your ordinary 20-year-old. He can be tough when he needs to be. In verse 7, we have the sons of Barzillai. All David is telling him to do here in this in this particular verse is just continue on with the policy of blessing that we've already had with these particular gentlemen. And then in verses 8 and 9, we see what's to happen to Shimei. Remember Shimei, the guy that cursed David when he's on his way, leaving in the Absalom Revolution? In verse 8, And behold, there is with you Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite of Bahurim. Now it is he who cursed me with a violent curse on the day I went to Mahanaim, but when he came down to me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with a sword. Now, therefore, do not let him go unpunished, for you are a wise man, and you will know what you ought to do to him. And you will bring his gray hair down to Sheol with blood. This reads like a Mario Puzo novel, doesn't it? But this is the word of God, and this is, there is no indication here at all that David is telling him to do the wrong thing. Shimei was deserving of death. But upon returning from the Absalom Revolution, if you'll recall that lesson, Shimei apologizes to David and begs for his life, and David says, Okay, I won't kill you. You need to listen very carefully when David says, I won't kill you. It doesn't say somebody else is not going to kill you, but he said, I'm not going to kill you. So he calls upon Solomon to use his wisdom that God's going to give him to hand out the appropriate punishment. What happens is Solomon calls Shimei, and he tells him, Essentially, that from here on out, after David dies, after David has died, you're going to be under house arrest in Jerusalem. You stay in Jerusalem, you're going to be fine. You cross the brook Kidron, and you're dead. That's what he tells him. Now, the purpose of that is that keeps Shimei from hooking up with his Benjaminite buddies. Remember, he's of the tribe of Benjamin. It keeps him from making any kind of political alliance that could overthrow Solomon. And then if we skip again ahead to verses 39 through 46, we'll see what happens. To Shimei in chapter 2. Then it came about at the end of three years that two of the servants of Shimei ran away to Akish, son of Makkah, king of Gath, and they told Shimei, saying, Behold, your servants are in Gath. Then Shimei arose and saddled his donkey and went to Gath, to Akish, to look for his servants, and Shimei went and brought his servants back from Gath. You think it's only been three years? You think Shimei forgot where he was supposed to be? I don't think so. If you're under house arrest, you know you can't leave Jerusalem? He knew that he wasn't supposed to leave Jerusalem. So he's openly rebelling against the king by doing this. And given his history, Solomon has every right to think that he's going to do it again. In verse 41, And it was told Solomon that Shimei had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and had returned. So the king sent and called for Shimei and said, And did I not make you swear by the Lord? And Solomon warn you, saying, You will know for certain that on the day you depart and go anywhere, you shall surely die. And you said to me, The word which I have spoken is good. So he agreed to all that. Verse 43. Why then have you not kept the oath of the Lord and the command which I laid on you? The king also said to Shimei, you know all the evil which you acknowledge in your heart, which you did to my father David. Therefore the Lord shall return evil on your head. But King Solomon shall be blessed and the throne of David shall be blessed forever. So the king commanded Benaniah, the son of Joadiah, and he went out and fell upon him so that he died. Thus the kingdom was established in the hands of of Solomon. Then in verses 10 through 12, we have a report of the death of David. It's reported without much elaboration at all. Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the days that David reigned over Israel were 40 years. Seven years he he reigned in Hebron and 33 years he reigned in Jerusalem. And Solomon sat on the throne of his father David and his kingdom was firmly established. David took over The kingdom, when he was 30, he died when he was 70. But there's one final problem that must be addressed, and that's the situation with his older brother, Adonijah. You'll recall in one of our last lessons that Adonijah had led a rebellion against his father, David, much like Absalom had tried to do. Adonijah's rebellion didn't go anywhere because David found out about it through Bathsheba. But nevertheless, he led this rebellion. Now that David's dead, Ananias is going to try to pull a fast one on Solomon. He's going to take advantage of his what he thinks is na- his naivete. So he goes to Bathsheba, and he asks for Abishag the Shunammite. You remember who she was? You, you'll recall that this Abishag the Shunammite is a very beautiful young girl, and she was the one that warmed David's bed when he became ill toward the end of his life. She was not his wife, and the text makes sure that we know that there was no physical intimacy between David and Abishag. Nevertheless, this was a power play on the part of Adonijah in order to get an upper hand on Solomon, but Solomon sees through the ruse, and he has... Adonijah executed. Because see, if Adonijah can take something that belonged to David, she wasn't a concubine, she wasn't a wife, but in the position that she had been placed in, she she still had some intimacy with David, although it wasn't a physical type of intimacy. It still was a violation of the culture at that time for the son to want someone who had been with the father, even in that way. Bathsheba says okay, and it would probably be Bathsheba's tendency to say okay because what's what's the big deal? Solomon doesn't want this girl. Why not? Why not just give this girl to Adonijah? Let's be done with it. Let's make everybody happy. Well, that's not what happens. As soon as Solomon finds out about that, he has Adonijah executed because he knows what Adonijah is trying to do. It's really a ruse in order to try to take the kingdom and all this intrigue which, again, I admit, reads like a Godfather Mario Puzo novel. In fact, I've often wondered if Puzo hadn't read some of these texts to get some of his ideas for what happens, especially at the end of Godfather 1 and Godfather 2. But what's really happening here, unlike Michael Corleone, Solomon is really maintaining the integrity of the Davidic covenant by doing these things. When we were first introduced to David, He was faithfully caring for his father's sheep in the fields outside of Bethlehem. Our final glimpse of David was of an old man, an aging king, giving counsel to his young son on how to deal with those who would attempt to end the young man's life after David went the way of all the earth. In between those two scenes, David lived one of the most remarkable lives that has ever been lived on this planet. It was not a perfect life. No one who has ever studied David would even pretend that it was a perfect life. And I suspect that David himself would laugh hysterically at the notion that he approached anything of perfection. It seems, though, that David lived every aspect of his life with uninhibited passion. Oftentimes that was a positive thing but then there were times when it certainly was not. David was a faithful shepherd of those few sheep in the wilderness. He was a musician in the court of the king, a fearless warrior, a desperate fugitive, and the king against which all other kings in Israel will be evaluated right up until the time where the king of kings and lord of lords reigns on the millennial throne. Above all, he was a man who loved God with an intensity that few people have ever matched. At the same time, David often allowed his intensity or the intensity of his passions to take him down roads that he probably never thought he would go. He could be vindictive. He could be conspiratorial. He could be hot-tempered. And he could be neglectful of those who needed him the most when they needed him the most. His own children all of his greatness on the battlefield and the throne room, he was by all accounts, at least up until the very end with Solomon, he was by all accounts a very poor father. yes, his sin with Bathsheba is quite well known, even by people who rarely open the Bible. He had his faults, to be sure, but make no mistake, no one who has subsequently judged David has been more severe on him than he was on himself. He's failed and he suffered for it. It has been said, poets learn in suffering what they teach in song. Perhaps this is true of David. Alexander McLaren wrote of him, None of the great men of Scripture passed through a course of so many changes. None of them touched human life at so many points, none of them were so tempered and polished by swift alteration of heat and cold, by such heavy blows and the friction of such rapid revolutions. David lived passionately. He succeeded with passion, and he failed with passion. He confessed, and he repented with passion. But first and foremost, he loved God passionately. The powerful play of life was a reality for David. And he contributed a verse that was, at times, incompatible with God's perfect plan. But on the whole.